Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. EU Confidential will get underway right after this message. Today's episode is presented by Shell. Success in delivering the EU's 2030 and 2050 targets will require an enabling policy framework including recognition of international climate action through Article 6 of the Paris Agreement. So let me conclude with a call to all member states to show a strong sense of responsibility to their own citizens and to all Europeans at this crucial moment and to get this recovery plan over the line. Welcome to EU Confidential, the number one European politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard Paolo Gentiloni, the EU's economy commissioner, pleading with member states to resolve a very big crisis after Hungary and Poland blocked the EU's 1.8 trillion euro budget and coronavirus recovery package. We'll talk about that and a Franco-German clash over Europe's relationship with the United States with our podcast podcast panel in a moment. And later in the episode, we'll talk about an even bigger crisis, the climate crisis, which should have been the centre of global attention this week with the COP26 conference in Glasgow. But that was, of course, postponed due to the pandemic. That doesn't mean there's been nothing happening on the climate front, though. On the contrary, we'll hear more about that in a special In Focus feature with two of our specialist reporters and some key voices in the debate. But first, let's get to that podcast panel. Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hello. Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello. And Lily Beyer joins us once again from our Brussels politics team. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Okay, let us start with the sound of EU politics right now. Well, I think that just pretty well sums up the um, the confusion, uh, the discombobulation, and the sheer kind of horror at what has been going on or the kind of existential angst um, manifested in that kind of psychedelic scream there, which came from a meeting of the General Affairs Council. Uh, That's uh, European affairs ministers from across the EU who came to discuss the big crisis of the week, really, which is uh, Hungary and Poland blocking the EU's big 1.8 trillion euro uh, budget and coronavirus recovery package. Lily, uh, you follow this most closely of all of us. Can you give us the very brief summary of, of what Hungary and Poland did and why they say they did it? So on Monday, there was a meeting of ambassadors and there were some procedural moves on the table to kind of move forward the process of finalizing the EU's budget and uh, recovery package. 
So Hungary and Poland decided、uh, to withhold their consent for the procedural moves to go ahead with finalizing these two things, and in effect blocked the entire 1.8 trillion budget and recovery package, which member states have been counting on. And、uh, which many of us had thought was already basically done. Okay, and the interesting thing here is that they also said they don't actually object to those things themselves. They're actually objecting to something else. So, give us the the brief summary of what that is. Yes. So, what they're objecting to is a new rule of law mechanism,、uh, which would link EU funding to respect for some rule of law criteria. And the way this would work. Is that if there was a breach of the rule of law in a member state that would affect or risk affecting the financial interests of the union, the Commission would be able to recommend to cut funding, not necessarily all funding, but at least some funding for the member state, and then the Council would vote on that recommendation to cut funding by a qualified majority. So this would be the new mechanism. But for Poland and Hungary's governments,、um, this was unacceptable. They say that the mechanism opens the way to to bias, that they would be discriminated against, and that this tool would be used politically to punish them for their ideologies in in their view. Right, and this is it because those are the countries, those are the governments anyway, which have been accused by the EU's own institutions of of falling short on rule of law, you know, basic democratic standards. Really, so they see themselves very much in in the crosshairs of this measure, and so the whole thing now. I mean, it's worth just taking stock here because we obviously follow this very closely. But literally a month and a half out from the start of the new budget period, this whole thing is now frozen.、Uh, the coronavirus recovery fund can't progress. The budget can't progress until this is solved, and the clock is ticking. And I do think also for us who follow this stuff very closely, it's just worth. Remembering that this is the stuff that tends to filter through to you know the real world, and it does seem to me like it's quite a dangerous moment for the whole of the EU. Where in Hungary and Poland, you're obviously people are seeing their governments and seeing the press saying we're being blackmailed by the EU. This is an attempt to target us and stop us getting EU money. And on the other side of the coin, and other parts of the continent, you have. Governments very angry at Hungary and Poland, and that being reflected in the media as well. So, Reem, how worried are French officials by this? Well, they're projecting calm, is the way I would、uh, describe it. You know, they're trying to basically project the sense that yes, this is a bit of a setback, but there's always something that comes up at the eleventh hour. They will find a way forward, and they will find a way through it, and、uh, the budget and the recovery fund will be saved. That's what they want to project. But clearly, this is a problem because the thing that really struck me, as you know, we started with、uh, this sound, which to me makes me think of you know when man first landed on the moon and they tried to call back into Earth, and sometimes. It has to be said, the EU feels that way to European citizens. This is going to be a real problem, a real PR problem for these leaders, especially at a time where 
a lot of people in the European countries, you know, are asking, what are you doing for us? What is the EU doing for us? How is the EU helping us through COVID? Yeah. Matt, what what do you make of it? Are we over-dramatising it? And how's it playing in Berlin at the moment? I mean, a lot of people, I think, are looking to Angela Merkel to, you know, play that role of the, the mediator and come up with the, you know, with some kind of deal that gets the EU out of this. Yeah. And I, I don't know that she can this time because she's effectively a nemesis of some of the sort of key actors here, um, Viktor Orban in particular. And so I, I don't know that she can play that role of mediator here. You know, my sense is that this is almost one crisis too many, and there's a lot of crisis fatigue. And I, I fear that maybe people aren't taking this as seriously as they should be in the real world, which is where I reside, of course. I think, though, the real danger might be to Hungary and Poland, maybe Hungary in particular, because I've been surprised by some of the, the commentaries I've heard in, in mainstream media in Europe suggesting that, you know, they find a way just to kick them out, you know. And, and you know, the other thing, though, that, that I think people find confusing is that, you know, you, you have people in the EPP, which is the party family that um, – Orban's uh, Fidesz also belongs to. You had Manfred Weber today, who's the, the head of the EPP, saying that within that group that there's full and unanimous support of the rule of law mechanism, which, you know, is a bit confusing. <laughs> to say the least. Given that, well, that, yeah. that's clearly not the case. It's a so. very, well, there's a very confusing situation also where Viktor Orban's party, Fidesz, is officially suspended from the EPP as a party alliance, but somehow its Fidesz MEPs are still members of the EPP group, of which Manfred Weber is the chair. So that's a strange form of suspension to, to most people, I think. Lily, what do you make of it and what are you hearing from, from EU officials, from diplomats in Brussels? Is there any inkling of what could be a compromise, what could be a way out here? So I think it's a bit mixed. I do sense from conversations with some diplomats that they feel that this crisis is different, um, that Hungary and Poland perhaps have pushed a bit too far. Um, so people are frustrated and a bit as a, at, at a loss as to what to do, I think, on the long run with this issue. In the short term, I do hear from some officials that they are testing um, some possible solutions in classic Brussels fashion. There may end up being a fudge. Um, the fudge might be a declaration guaranteeing uh, a certain objectivity uh, in the way that this mechanism is going to be implemented. Uh, but it's still unclear if that will be enough to bring the Hungarians and the Poles on board yeah, I would just make a couple of quick points. One is that this is a real game of multidimensional chess because this is not something where the member countries, even if they could, can just hammer out a deal. Um, there are other players here, in particular the European Parliament, which has kind of made a big play on the rule of law mechanism here. So uh, the compromise that uh, Hungary and Poland have objected to is something that was signed off by Parliament negotiators, still has to be confirmed by the full Parliament. So there's so many different players here who all have to line up um, for this to work. And I would just also say that Lily makes a good point that there's a, there's a longer term crisis here, which is about values, you know, about the kind of what the EU is all about. It's an existential crisis. These tensions have been brewing for for years, really, and it's kind of exploded here almost at the worst possible time. That's why I think it's going to be very difficult to come up with some kind of fudge here, because it would lack 
credibility. This really cuts to the core of what the EU is supposed to be about. And if you compromise on the fundamental principles of the European Union and what it claims to stand for, then you're on a very hollow foundation, I think, going forward, which is why you see the European Parliament in particular, I think, taking a hard stand here. So it's very difficult for me to see how you're going to find some, you know, 11th hour sort of dirty compromise that's going to make everybody happy. You know, if the EU backs down on this, I think it'll have serious long-term implications for the credibility of the entire bloc. Mm. Let's move on to another topic, because uh, I'm sure we're going to come back to that one. Um, it's the other kind of big talking point of the week, I would say, and that is strategic autonomy. Our, own, our old friend, the great uh, buzzword of uh, Emmanuel Macron. What's been interesting here is that it's become the centre of a big debate involving Macron and the German defence minister, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer. Matt, do you just want to start us off with, with you know, where... Kramp-Karrenbauer has um, made her mark in this debate, and, and why do you think she's chosen to do so? Well, she came out a couple of weeks ago uh, with a speech and then an op-ed in Politico basically saying that this idea of strategic autonomy is an illusion and that Europe should not continue to pretend that this is a viable option, that, of course, Europe should try to build up its own capability, but that that has to be done in close cooperation with the United States and that the Europeans are going to continue to need to rely on the U.S. as their main security partner and that there really is no other option to that. And this might sound like a nuance, but it, it really is, I think, a, a fundamental disagreement within the EU, and particularly between Macron and uh, Kram Karrenbauer, apparently, because he came out with his own interview then, where he, he basically said that he profoundly disagreed with her and um, you know, suggested that she was making a historical misinterpretation here of what was uh, happening. And then Kamkamabara came back again with, with another speech where she really doubled down on what she had said the first time, but at the same time suggesting that, in fact, she and Macron were in full agreement. So the whole thing is, is a bit confusing, but it does suggest that these questions about where Europe is going to go in terms of defense and security remain, you know, no more resolved than they were uh, before Trump. Mm. Reem, what do you make of it? Why do you think he has chosen particularly to, uh, you know, mention Kramp Karrenbauer uh, specifically? You know, we're obviously grateful for the publicity he gave to the uh, Political Europe and, and the op-ed that she published there, he, he mentioned that specifically. But why do you think he has chosen to so publicly criticise the defence minister of, you know, France's key EU partner here? You know, I think this question has dumbfounded uh, most people who read that interview. It's it's an odd thing for him to do. Some people think that it's it was almost kind of counterproductive because at the end of the day, AKK, as she's known in Germany, uh, is one of the people who uh, as, actually is uh, in favor of increasing defense spending in Germany, increasing defense capabilities, which is not a given in the German um, debate. And 
to be honest, no one has provided a good explanation so far, especially this also attempt to very publicly drive a wedge between Akaka and the German uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, given how close the two women are, you know, politically speaking and in their careers. Okay, as usual, uh, we have talked for too long. As usual, Christina, I can see her on the Zoom screen thinking, there goes my evening, as she has to uh, cut all of this down. So we'll uh, leave it there for now. Uh, Lily, Matt and Reem, thanks very much. Now let's get ready to talk climate. Right after this short break, we'll bring you our Energy in Focus discussion on COP26 and where things stand on the climate front. A message from Shell. International cooperation delivered through Article 6 of the Paris Agreement could drive climate action at a faster and larger scale and deliver a cost-effective transition to climate neutrality. Shell supports the EU in promoting international climate cooperation through Article 6 to deliver net-zero emissions globally. Once a robust framework is agreed to ensure high environmental integrity and a mechanism to adjust nationally determined contributions, the EU climate law and underlying EU policy framework should provide for the rules and criteria to recognise international projects in accordance with Article 6. The European Commission is proposing to increase the 2030 targets for emission reduction to at least 55%. We aim to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. Humanity was caught napping by coronavirus. But let's face it, we were, we were, we were woefully un- underprepared. But for this thing, for climate change, nobody uh, can say that we have not been warned. Uh, and nobody can say that we are not now capable of making the preparations. So that's what we're doing. Uh, and I have no doubt that we can be successful. So if it weren't for the pandemic, the eyes of the world would be on Glasgow right now as the city would be hosting the final days of the COP26 UN climate talks. Scotland's biggest city would be packed with world leaders, diplomats, activists, business leaders and journalists. Now, obviously, COVID-19 means that's out of the question this year and the conference will now be held still in Glasgow, but in November 2021 instead. But that doesn't mean nothing's been happening on the climate front. Far from it. You just heard from leaders of some of the world's biggest economies and they've been busily setting ambitious new climate targets or they plan to do so soon. So I'm joined by two of our climate reporters to do our very own little mini COP26, take stock of what's been happening in terms of global climate diplomacy and what to expect in the months to come. So we'll hear from them and also some key voices in the debate. So it's hi to Kalina Oroshakov. Hi, Kalina. Hi, Andrew. And to Carl Matheson. Hi, Carl. Hi, Andrew. Okay, so for our listeners who may not follow climate policy that closely, maybe you can just start off by giving us a sense of what a COP is. You know, what's it like? So COPs are ginormous global meetings. I've um, been at quite a few, I think five by now. And they're usually huge, very fun and very stressful. But if you think about it, it's literally it's just big conference halls, with people from all over the world, delegates from every country that you can imagine, 
trying to come to political agreements. Okay. And what was the particular aim of the COP26 in Glasgow this year, Carl? When countries signed the Paris Agreement in 2015, they agreed to make voluntary targets, voluntary contributions. These were known as nationally determined contributions or NDCs. And basically, they all came together, they made all these voluntary pledges, and they also agreed to limit warming to well below two degrees. Now, all the voluntary pledges that they made add up to a round warming of 2.7 degrees. It's a long way off the target, and it's actually a really catastrophic amount of warming. So the key focus for COP26 is that countries agreed every five years to come back and revisit their pledges and basically bump them up and try and get to something more aligned to two or even 1.5 degrees if they can. And the UK has been put in charge of that because they're the hosts. So we spoke to the UK's COP26 envoy, John Merton. His job's to lead the government's diplomatic push and get out around the world asking countries, asking governments to raise their targets to bump up their climate finance commitments and also to help poor countries prepare for the impacts of climate change. And he told us that getting ambitious new targets at this conference was the absolute key for them. COP26 will be a success if we can demonstrate the world is on an accelerating and irreversible transition to a low-carbon economy. But then, of course, came COVID. Right. So how has the pandemic and the whole delay to COP26 impacted the effort, uh, you know, the targets that the UK government as the host was hoping to reach? Yeah, Andrew, it's been surprisingly positive for the goals of COP26 because, of course, over the last four years, you've had a US administration that's really thrown the Paris Agreement out the window and, and literally left the Paris Agreement two weeks ago. The United States will withdraw from the Paris Climate Accord. So the general consensus was that if COP was being held right now, countries in advance of it would not have moved at all or wouldn't have moved as much as they might when we see them come back in November 2021. Yes, and surprisingly, we've actually seen a number of ambitious pledges over the last months uh, from countries that nobody expected to come forward. So, of course, the big news was China, which in September announced a carbon net emissions goal um, by 2060 that defied expectations with people actually expecting China to wait until the US elections. China's announcement then triggered a, a wave of other major economies to announce similarly ambitious pledges or even more. Japan followed in the EU's Footsteps and also announced a, a climate neutrality goal by 2050. South Korea moved too. Somehow the tide has turned and expectations are now that the COP26 might actually create a bigger momentum than the COP26 this year could have created. I do think the fact that COP26 has been delayed as a result of COVID-19 gives us a sort of, if you like, certainly in the climate space, a, a silver lining to that particular cloud. I do think it, it, it's taken us the other side of the US election. Uh, it's given us more time to, to push countries on their ambition. And it's given us, in the words of Fatih Barol from the International Energy Agency, a postcard from the future. It's helped us see what a lower emission world could look like. And we've seen how much we've all adapted our behaviours as a result of COVID-19. And in that context, it becomes a little easier to imagine how we could adapt our behaviours so that we could still be prosperous, but we could also tackle climate change. 
Okay, so the delay has given a bit more room for manoeuvre politically. We've seen uh, targets being set or indicated. How does that then uh, feed through, you know, what happens as a result of, of government setting those targets? When governments set targets, we've seen since the Paris Agreement that it sends this powerful signal out into the world of finance and investment and it begins this self-fulfilling cycle. And that's particularly true when what we've got now is the biggest economies on earth aligning. So when Biden takes over in the US, that will bring about two-thirds of the global economy under net zero targets. And if you're an investor, that makes maybe it less profitable for you to invest in coal, then you might switch that investment you might have made into a coal mine into, say, a wind farm or producing solar panels. And so as we see these shifts, uh, we will see the world economy turn. And what's becoming really exciting in the climate change agenda is in the old days, we were asking countries to trade a little bit of their economic growth away in order to achieve emissions reductions. And now what you saw Prime Minister Suga saying when he made the announcement of a net zero target to the Japanese parliament is it's the transition to a net zero economy, to a lower carbon economy that will spur economic growth in Japan. Okay, and I imagine the delay must also have been a big relief for UK diplomats who have their hands full at the moment with with Brexit and uh, perhaps wouldn't have wanted to be trying to host a huge global summit in the middle of a pandemic. I think uh, secretly it's probably a huge relief for UK diplomats as well as pretty much everybody else. Um, But I think in terms of the UK specifically, I mean, the UK is no longer a member of the EU. So this conference um, in Glasgow, no less, is pretty much the first huge global moment for the UK to show that they're a global power. Of course, some say, can the UK actually pull that off? Will Great Britain still be that relevant once it's really left the bloc and once it's just the United Kingdom? But um, as we as we've been seeing, Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been ramping up the rhetoric around climate. The UK government this week actually announced quite an comprehensive vision or plan for for more ambitious climate targets, including some headline grabbing announcement like phasing out cars. So we will see whether that global plus Green Britain will hold. Some are already a bit skeptical, but time will tell. Now we have a delay, which means that the COP host the UK government doesn't have to juggle the final days of their Brexit talks and so this will free up diplomatic bandwidth so that the UK can actually focus on the COP. This is Mohamed Addo. He's one of the smartest voices on climate coming out of Africa. You know they talk about a global Britain brand and I hope that is not just a PR slogan. He's been in countless climate talks where Carl and I had also the pleasure to talk with him many times. And now he started his own think tank in Kenya, advising African governments on their domestic and international climate policy. And, and they want to actually claim to be the, an international climate leader. Then the UK recovery packet needs to actually be a pro-climate. And it but on a global scale, it's probably going to matter more to countries like India or Indonesia, what the US or China decides to do than what the UK asks for. Merton, for example, sees the UK being more effective by teaming up with bigger economies. We now need to be, if you like, a cheerleader for ambition. Uh, And we can convene different countries to try and speed some of these changes. I'll give you two good examples. If you take the EU, China and California and put them in a room, you've got half of global vehicle sales in that room represented. So if you set standards for the phase out of of automobiles, uh, of internal combustion engine automobiles and, and 
diesel automobiles, you set standards that will affect global markets. If you take the, the, the renewable energy transition, the UK, Germany and China account for something like 70% of global offshore wind installed capacity. And those three countries between them have essentially brought down the cost of offshore wind installations to a level that they're now uh, very economic and can compete with fossil fuels. That wasn't the case just 10 years ago. And so you get small... So because there is no actual physical meeting this year, is there anything else the UK is doing to try and push things forward until they can actually meet in person in Glasgow next year? Yeah, as, as soon as Xi Jinping made his speech in September to the UN General Assembly uh, announcing that China was going to have a 2060 net zero target, the UK and the UN quickly kind of jumped on the momentum bandwagon and announced that they were going to host a summit on December 12th, which is the fifth anniversary of the Paris Agreement. And at that summit, they're going to ask countries to step up their targets. That will be held virtually and it's probably not an accident that that summit comes one day after the EU leaders will meet and discuss their own 2030 climate target. But there are, of course, a couple of other things on the agenda that are looking much tougher for the UK to solve. For one, the rules that govern the Paris Agreement haven't yet been fully agreed. The COP25 in Madrid didn't manage to complete the chapter that deals with carbon markets or how to use emissions trading under the Paris Agreement. But that is again not the only thing that UK should be worried about. There's a big other problem and that is an ever-occurring issue, which is the money. Or in climate speak, it's called climate finance. Okay, so what does climate finance actually mean? There's always a fight who's responsible for climate change and who's responsible for funding the necessary steps to tackle climate change, either by cutting emissions or also adapting to climate change impacts. Now, of course, it's the wealthy and industrialized nations that actually created the emissions that we now all have to deal with. And so the wealthy countries had agreed to come up with 100 billion in annual climate finance money by 2020. So again, this year is a big deadline in climate politics. So now the issue is, and the concern of developing countries that they say these 100 billion, which haven't been yet met, they also need to be increased because we need to receive more money to actually deal with climate change that is becoming worse by the minute. And countries aren't that excited or thrilled to actually come up with more money, especially not now in a pandemic where budgets are tight. And so when we asked Merton how it was going, he didn't exactly respond with the same confidence as he did when talking about target raising. We're calling on all countries to, to make good on, on really ambitious commitments in the climate finance area. And the European Union has a really important role to play because it sort of represents so many donor countries. And now that sort of budgets are getting more settled, as we understand the economic impact of COVID-19, it's very important for European states and the EU to show leadership in helping reach the 100 billion, not just for member states, but also for the Commission to showing a commitment to climate justice and donor countries making good on that. Now, let's hear again from Mohammed and how things look from his vantage point in Kenya, because he sees climate finance as rich countries taking responsibility for creating climate change. For him, it's not aid, it's not a donation, it's a responsibility. He's also concerned about what happens in Africa, what happens closer to home, because one third of the global population could be African by 2100. And whether these economies grow and develop based on fossil fuels or renewable energy matters to all of us, because 
their emissions could be enormous throughout the second half of this century. And we haven't had the historical polluters uh, facing up the historical uh, emissions and the historical debt and, and providing enough support, particularly to the vulnerable developing countries. Yes, that's also why developing countries, for example, worry that the climate funds that wealthy nations make available will only go towards projects that cut emissions. They, however, need also money to help them adapt to climate change-related impacts, be that droughts, storms or heavy rainfalls, which already harm their economies and make it even more difficult to deal with climate change. So we are effectively rewarding the biggest emitters by help in helping them to, in, to reduce their emissions without incentivizing a world that is effectively a zero carbon, where countries that are currently low emitters, but actually wanting to provide the greatest leadership, don't necessarily get incentivized to be able to actually grow on a more sustainable path. And, and this is something That's that an issue can... vulnerable countries will want to put on the agenda of the COP26 negotiations next year in Glasgow as well. If we don't have climate finance, which is needed now more than ever, then the chances of us actually helping to address the challenge of climate change is going to be much, much more higher than it's ever been. Okay, Carl, Kalina, thanks very much for a great summary. Thanks to you. Thanks, Andrew. Now, uh, Lily and Reem and Matt are back with me briefly, very briefly, to give us their recommendations for things to read or watch or listen to as we try to get through lockdown. Uh, Reem, let's start with you. What have you got? This week's uh, episode of Red Table Talk with Jamila Jamil, in which she talks about what it's like to be a woman today in the public sphere and also on social media. And it's just such a great talk. Okay, we'll add a link to that in the notes for the podcast. Uh, Matt, what have you got? I've got a podcast as well, which is called Wind of Change. It's a a multi-part podcast about whether the CIA was behind the famous Scorpion song that swept Russia and the former (laughs) Soviet Union in the early 1990s. I think it's the high point of German musical Absolutely. history, right? Wind of it's change so typical of yeah. Matt to add conspiracy <laughs> to, the, to the world. Yeah, okay. All right, that one's noted, Wind of Change. A multi-part it certainly is. Uh, I'm tempted to recommend a Guardian piece recently called Why Is Everything So Long? But uh, I won't... Including and, this podcast. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this one is relatively short compared to that one. Lily, what, what do you have? So The Crown Season 4, which I promise is better than Season 3. Okay, uh, commendably succinct. Uh, I'm going to just mention a couple of music podcasts if you just want to switch off from politics and uh, international affairs and all of that. Song Exploder and Soda Jerker on Song. I won't say any more than that. We'll put the links. Have a look if they appeal to you. You can almost certainly find an episode that might be of interest in their back catalogues. So Lily, Reem and Matt, thanks very much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. We encourage you to subscribe or to follow the podcast on your favourite listening platform so that you get our episodes as soon as they're published. And remember, you can always send us feedback and ideas. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Until next week, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.